Well, I want to invite you to jump into the word with me this morning. And thank you, worship team, for leading us in this time of spirit-filled praise. And one of the lyrics that we just sang just a moment ago was, The King is Among Us. As I, were, as I was praying about the direction that God would lead our church as we ramp up to Easter, we are officially two weeks away from Easter Sunday, and it's going to be a glorious time to remember the resurrection of our Savior and really the resurrection of all of us, right? Those who call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior, we are responding uh, to the resurrection that's happened in our lives. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us. And so here we are, and we're jumping into this new series that we've titled, The King is Among Us. The King is Among Us. I want to encourage you, wherever you're at, to just say that right now. Say, the king is among us. The king is among us. The king is among you, and the king has a name, and his name is Jesus. So we're going to begin looking at all the different things that took place that leads us up to the resurrection And I want to take us to a place this morning that is going to feel a little bit deep. In moments, it'll feel a little tough. And I think that it's helpful as we remember the king who is right now among us. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 14. That's where we're going to camp out and spend the majority of our time. Mark chapter 14, specifically verses 32 through 40. Let's go ahead and look together. When you get there, say, I'm there. When you're ready, say, I'm ready. And if you're hungry for the word this morning, say, let's eat. Let's eat. This isn't your moment to get up and go grab something from the fridge, though, all right? Come on, stay with me now. Mark chapter 14, uh, verses 32 and beyond. Let's go ahead. The text says, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Right? He he communicates to the Lord, Jesus himself. He's he's in a holy moment right now. He's communicating to the Father. He's saying, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He goes on to say, and he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Surely this time they're going to be locked in. But, but that wasn't the case. He said to them, Are you still sleeping? And taking your rest, it's enough. The hour has come, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Father, right now as we get ready to eat from your word, we pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, 
Take us back 2,000 years ago into the garden, and may we see you clearly and get to know you better through this sermon right now. In Jesus' name, Holy Spirit, help us. Amen. Amen. The title of this message would be, The King is Among Us in the Garden. The King is Among Us in the Garden. Let's go ahead and kick it off in Mark chapter 14, verses 32 and 33. The text tells us that they went to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. This name Gethsemane actually means oil press. It's the same word that would be translated to the Hebrew phrase oil press. And there's a lot of different imagery that could be associated with that, like Jesus is He's being pressed in the anointing and salvation is getting ready to flow from his life. But it's interesting that right here, before any of that could happen, we find Jesus in Gethsemane. Oh, that we would go back there with him right now. That this would be a moment, whether we're at our house or in the living room or upstairs, maybe you're in the bed right now, maybe this would be a moment that you, you really lean in and say, God, take me back to that garden with my Savior for the next few minutes in this sermon. He is in Gethsemane. If there's a place in the Bible that would be considered holy ground, if there would ever be a place to maybe take your sandals off and stand there and say, God, I am on holy ground, it would be in the garden of Gethsemane. I can't imagine getting to Easter without going through the garden. In order for us to get to the cross, you first have to see Jesus in the garden. Before Jesus gets to the empty tomb, you must spend time with him here in the garden. Jesus says, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. We bolded that last phrase, greatly distressed and troubled, because this is a moment in Jesus's life. I was reading some commentators on this passage of scripture and some noted that in, in the Bible, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you never necessarily find a place where it says Jesus laughed. You don't necessarily find a place where it says that Jesus showed emotion like that. But we do find emotion, real emotion here that shows that he was troubled, that he was distressed. I think that could probably and possibly relate to you today that you might be watching this and you might be sensing, I'm feeling troubled and distressed about a lot of things. Maybe you're thinking, I'm troubled because I wasn't expecting to homeschool this early, right? Maybe you're feeling distressed because you are waiting to go back to work to provide for your family. Maybe you're troubled because at this point you thought you would be midway through March madness, right? And now you feel March sadness, right? I would relate to you. Jesus is distressed and he is very much troubled. We learn a variety of different things about Jesus in the garden. And I think it's important that we lean in to some of those right now. The first thing that I learned from Jesus in the garden is the humanity of Jesus. Right here on display is the very human emotion that came with the Christ. Right In the incarnation, you see God putting on flesh Right in Jesus the Son of God entering into this world, right, through a manger in a little town called Bethlehem, growing up in a very, very real place called 
Nazareth. I'm thinking back to the time that my wife and I spent in Israel and going to these actual places that Jesus walked and he was in a place called Gethsemane. And here the very human nature of Jesus is being on display. It says that he was troubled and distressed. Kent Hughes writes in his commentary on this passage, he says, the name Gethsemane means oil press. Here, Jesus left the body of disciples near the entrance and took the three farther up on the property where he underwent a stress of cosmic dimensions, the greatest in the chronicles of the universe. What R. Kent Hughes tells us here is that there's never been a level of stress quite like what Jesus has right now. The, the amount of stress and trouble that he's feeling, the, the sorrow within his heart the night before he would be crucified is on display for us. Let us lean in. Let us see our Savior in this place. Would it do something to us? Would it create some type of humility? Would it create some type of angst and, and maybe even repentance to see our Lord in this state. The text goes on into verse 34 and 35 where it says, Jesus then said to them, his disciples, his core group, Matthew, or uh, not necessarily Matthew, the, the three that he brought with him, James, John, and Peter, his VIP list. He said, I want you guys to come with me because you guys are my boys and you guys are gonna watch out for me. You guys are gonna pray with me. And he says to them here, he says, my soul is very sorrowful. Notice how the Savior doesn't just say his soul is sorrowful. He says it's very sorrowful in this moment. How sorrowful, you might ask. Jesus would reply, even to death. Even to death? That our Savior and our King in this moment is so sorrowful that his soul is sorrowful to death. I, I don't know that I've ever felt this way before. I, I, I've thought of, man, can I come up with a illustration or something that could potentially relate to this? And because I don't think anything can relate to this, we're gonna let Jesus have this moment on his own. He's the example. That Jesus in the garden is the very picture of the absolute trouble and sorrow that only he could experience in this moment. In fact, he's living out a prophecy right before us. The king is among us, living out Isaiah chapter 53 in this text. Right 500 years before Jesus would go to Gethsemane, the prophet Isaiah would say it like this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. 500 years before Jesus would step foot on this earth physically, the prophet Isaiah was writing about this coming Messiah. But it wasn't a coming Messiah skipping through fields, very cheerful. This is a coming Savior who was very sorrowful, even to the point of death, being rejected by people, even his closest disciples right here. As we make our way to Easter, may we sense some of the sorrow that our Savior had for us. C.J. Mahaney also comments on 
this passage. He says it like this. He says that you are looking at the greatest display of obedience in all history. He says the Savior's soul was crucified here in the Garden of Gethsemane before his body would be crucified on a hill called Calvary. Let us lean in to this moment. What else can we learn from this? We see the humanity side of Jesus, right? We see that Jesus is able to relate to us. Jesus is able to lean in to your weakness, to your trouble, to your sorrow as a dad, mom, child, parent, grandparent, struggling friend here in Las Vegas. Jesus says, I know about sorrow too. I know about trouble too, and you can bring that to me and find hope and rest. The second thing I learn about Jesus in this text is that the garden shows us that the cost for our sin. It's in the garden that we learn the humanity of Jesus, but it's in the garden that we also learn the cost for our sin. Maybe you've heard this phrase before that salvation is, is free, right? For us, it's a free gift offered by God. But I also would qualify that statement with it's not cheap, right? That, that, that yes, salvation came to us freely, but it did not come to Jesus freely. It did not come to the Father freely. In fact, the Father says, I'm giving my own Son to accomplish salvation for us. That God would love you watching this so much, that God would love me, a young sinful person from Las Vegas, so much that he would even send his Son, Jesus, and Jesus would volunteer for the task. Right? We see Jesus here in the garden and he's saying, I am troubled and sorrowful even to the point of death. And then Jesus falls to the ground. Can you just picture him falling? Can you, can you picture Jesus stumble to his knees? And oh, what it would be to be able to hear his prayer at that moment. We can. It's actually recorded for us. The gospel writer Mark pens what Jesus prayed. Let's look at it together. Mark chapter 14, verse 36 says, that Jesus then began to pray. He said, Abba, Father. Wow. And most times you just see one of those phrases. Right here you see both. The phrase Abba, which is an intimate way to say dad, is an intimate way to say, dad, are you? here right now? Are you with me right now? He says, Father, I need you to listen up. And here's the prayer that he petitions to the Father. He says, all things are possible for you. That's a good place to say amen right there. That's a great reminder for us here today. That the Father is able, just as Pastor Mike prayed, he's able, he has the ability, all things are possible for him. So Jesus, knowing that, goes on with his prayer. He says, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. We see this powerful, sorrowful, sombering, and humble prayer by the Savior. We have not seen a request like this in Scripture. We will not see a request like this again. That it's in this moment 
that Jesus goes to the Father and says, if there's any other way than to go to the cross and be brutally crucified for the sin of Haydn and Walk Church and anybody else, that's what. If there's another way where I don't have to go to the cross, can you go ahead and make that happen like right now because I'm feeling the weight of it now. The night before Jesus went to the cross, he was troubled and sorrowful. He says, if there's any other way, yet not what I will, but what you will. The great philosopher C.S. Lewis says that in Gethsemane, the holiest of all petitioners prayed three times that a certain cup might pass from him. It did not. That it's in Gethsemane that the greatest person to ever walk this earth, Jesus Christ, the Lord himself, prayed three times, petitioning the Father three times, God, if you can make this cup pass from me, and yet God stays silent. What must have been in that cup? Maybe you would ask this morning, what's in the cup? Right, what, what is troubling Jesus so much that he is asking God to take it away? The answer would be found throughout the Old Testament. That God has a pattern of teaching us prophetic words that would be fulfilled by Christ himself. And throughout the Old Testament, we see this on display. The cup would stand for the wrath of God. Isaiah would speak about a savior who would drink down the wrath of God in his cup. Jeremiah speaks about the cup that sits in God's right hand that he will pour out his righteous and holy wrath. David in the Psalms speaks of this cup that he would one day release his righteous indignation and wrath and only a savior who is sinless can drink that type of cup. And it's in this moment that Jesus realizes that on the cross, he's not afraid of wooden soldiers. He's not afraid of a tree. He's not afraid of Romans, Pontius Pilate, or Herod. In fact, they should be afraid of him, right? He's not scared or concerned about that at all. That's not troubling Jesus. You don't find the Messiah praying in the garden, God, take away Pontius Pilate. But you do find him petitioning the Father about the cup. Because what was in the cup was the stored up wrath of God for all sin throughout all humanity. The sin that you created was in that cup. The sin that I did was in that cup. The sin that you had done. And the wrath stored up for you from a holy and righteous God. The wages of our sin is death. And that death is in this cup. And so three times Jesus says, this is about to cost me something, isn't it, Father? But not my will, but yours be done. What did this cost the Savior? It cost him everything. In Luke's translation of this passage, the gospel writer Luke says, it was in this moment that Jesus began to sweat drops of blood. That it was at this point that Jesus had a very real medical condition where his sweat beads that were originally just regular sweat became red and bloody. Such a issue that if you happen to sweat drops of blood, you're under such 
stressed at that moment that you could possibly die in that state. Jesus being aware of the wrath of God is in that place. I like how the old revivalist Leonard Ravenhill says it. He says, Gethsemane is where he died. The cross is only the evidence. That it was in Gethsemane that Jesus had this dialogue with the Father. And he says, God, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. And God stays silent. If I can go ahead and highlight that statement just for a moment, I think it's powerful, where Jesus says, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus has this moment where he says, God, I'm I'm being reminded in the garden of why I came. Maybe you've lost track of why Jesus came. But he tells us throughout the Gospel of John that he is here to fulfill the will of God. John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman and his disciples, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Right? We say this every week at Walk Church. We say, if you're hungry... Say, let's eat. And we're talking about eating from the word of God. If you were to ask Jesus what was his food, he said, my food is to do the will of the Father. That Jesus' one desire was to accomplish the will that God had for him. In another place in the Gospel of John, John chapter 6, verse 38, he says, for I have come down from heaven. Maybe you would ask Jesus, why'd you come down from heaven? Well, here's what he says. Not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. Jesus says that I've come from heaven to do the will of the Father. And right here in the Gethsemane Garden, he's saying that still remains true. Sometimes God's will for our lives is not always fun. Sometimes God's will for our lives is challenging, but never more challenging than this moment. Now, if I could just pull an application out of the life of Jesus is, what would it look like for you to pray that type of prayer today? For you to get alone with God and just say, hey, God, Father, Abba, not my will, but yours be done. That's really the Lord's prayer. And I really believe your response to that prayer has eternity in the balance. That your response to Fulfilling the will of God has everything to do with eternity. Let me show it to you. Matthew chapter 7, this same Jesus looks at his disciples and speaks to us. These are actually the verses that led me to get saved. I can remember as a 19-year-old freshman in college, when I read these words, my life changed forever. The scripture says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That means that there's people that are actually gonna call Jesus Lord and they're not gonna enter the kingdom of heaven. That might ask us to say, well, who, who is gonna be in? How do you get in? Well, he tells us. The one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. The the, the ticket for heaven is in response to, God, whatever your will is, that's what I want to do. And in the garden, Jesus is obedient to the will of the Father on our behalf. 
So on all of our mess-ups, on all of our sin, all of that is in the cup. Jesus is getting ready to take that cup on the cross. We see him here, and we're learning the cost for our sin. What does it look like for you today to say, God, not my will, but yours be done? That God is doing something in our nation right now. He's doing something in our city right now. Come on, he's doing something in the world right now. This is a ever-present moment in history to turn to Jesus and to talk to him and to say, God, not my will, but yours be done. The third thing that we learn in the garden is that we learn the prominence of prayer. The prominence of prayer. This word prominence means the number one spot. The thing that is the main thing. What is the thing that Jesus is doing? Notice that right now when it says Jesus is very sorrowful, troubled, and stressed, sweating drops of blood, that he does not turn to an alcohol bottle. He does not turn to a side piece. He does not turn to a self-help fulfillment. He turns to God. He turns his energy and attention and affection to prayer. That Jesus in the garden says, I'm not going to look to the left. You guys are sleeping. I'm not going to look to the right. You guys are sleeping. He goes, I'm going to look up to a God who doesn't sleep and a God who's going to hear me right now and answer my prayer. He says, three times he prayed. Look at Mark chapter 14, verse 37 through 39 says that he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Would he say that to you? That Jesus were to step down into your everyday life? I wonder if the message of Christ for the American church is, are you guys sleeping? Right? I, I know that there's a lot of trouble going on right now in the world. Are you sleeping? I think that this is a message to wake up the disciples who were there with Jesus physically slept on him in the toughest night of his life. He says, Peter, what are you doing? Are you, you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Could you, could you, give, me a, could you give me 60 minutes? While I'm sweating blood, what he says in verse 38 is brilliant. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 39 again, and again, he went away and prayed. Scripture tells us that he said the same words. We find here Jesus modeling for us in the garden, Jesus teaching us, Jesus coaching us, Jesus encouraging us to say, turn to God in prayer. Make prayer prominent in your life. What is prayer? Prayer is talking to God. Prayer is having a dialogue with the Savior of the world. The Apostle Paul once said in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, that we should pray without ceasing, that we should have an ever-going, ever-flowing lifestyle and dialogue with God himself. I once heard it put like this from Dr. Danny Aiken. He says that if God is always listening, 
And we should be always praying because we have a God who has a big enough ear to lean down and hear us. Jesus prioritizes prayer. Jesus shows us the prominence of prayer. And for for you to be able to live out the word and will of God, you must make prayer prominent in your life. I want you to ask yourself, maybe you would ask the people closest to you. Maybe you would say to them, hey, can you help me with something? What do you see in my life as prominent? What do you see in my life is the main thing? If you look at Jesus' life, the main thing for him was prayer. In fact, the, the disciples, when they approached Jesus, they, they didn't ask, Jesus, teach us how to preach. They didn't ask, Jesus, teach us how to walk on water. That was really dope. They didn't ask, Jesus, show us how to heal blind people. That would be amazing. What did they ask? Lord, teach us how to pray. Because when you pray, miracles happen. When you pray, lives change. When you pray, people come up out of the grave and get saved and changed and lives are set free. God, teach us how to make prayer prominent again in our lives. What a moment while some of you may be in a self-quarantine. Maybe you be maybe absent from work right now. Maybe you may be absent. You may have extra time. What a time to prioritize prayer, to make it the prominent thing in your life. We, we asked our church this past week to do 24 and 24. What does that mean? It means taking 24 minutes out of your day to spend 24 minutes with God out of your 24 hours, right? Jesus looks at the disciples and said, you couldn't hang with me for an hour? We're not even asking you for an hour, all right? But what about 24 minutes? And I've found that even for myself as a pastor, Bible teacher, one who who loves and believes in this Jesus that we're talking about, that has been hard to, to prioritize those 24 minutes, but when I've done it, it has been worth it. I've gotten to know Jesus well through the gospel of Matthew. We're in the gospel of Matthew doing this if this is your first time. You're welcome to join us. We're on Matthew chapter five today, 24 minutes with Jesus, five minutes of worship, 10 minutes of word, five minutes of journaling, four minutes of prayer. It's already carved out for you to do. Would you prioritize and make prayer prominent in your life? Again, E.M. Bounds, a great prayer warrior, once wrote a book that said this, he said, we do more of everything else than of praying. Is that real? I know for me, I'm, I'm thinking, man, right now, wow, all the things that we put in our lives before spending time with God. Every great awakening in history started with people praying. And that's not going to change now. That Jesus made prayer prominent. Oswald Chambers, the great writer of the book, Utmost for His Highest, he says it like this. He says, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. I think sometimes we have this mentality, all right, I got to pray, and then I'm going to go work. That would be backwards, according to the scripture. This is the work. Jesus is not doing much work physically right here in the garden. Oh, but the work he's doing spiritually is great. The work that he's doing as he prays is producing much 
in the life of our lives and in his church. We see this on display right here. The final point that we learn from the garden is that we learn that the flesh is weak. Right? We've learned the humanity of Jesus. We've seen that on display. We've learned the cost for our sin, and the cost is great. We've learned the prominence of prayer in Jesus' life, but right here we learn that our flesh is weak, that we need supernatural help to live out the calling on our lives. Our flesh is weak, as this text concludes. Mark 14, verse 39 through 42 says, Again, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And maybe you might be there too. You might say, I don't even know what to say. I don't even know what to answer Jesus right now. I, I'm, I'm, not, I don't, I'm without words. And, and that's where the disciples were. They got called out again. They said, man, I don't even got words for you right now, Lord. I'm, I'm stuck. I'm puzzled. Verse 41 says that he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. One thing that Jesus highlights in this context is that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That God is willing to go the distance. That God has placed in us a spirit that is willing to do great things. But something about our flesh is so weak. Something about our flesh stops us and hinders us from doing the things of God. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7, he says, God, why do I do the things I hate? Why don't I do the things I want to do? I want to do what's right. I, I want to follow you. I want to do a 24 and 24. I want to stop sinning. I want to start worshiping. I want to trust God in this time, but I keep going backwards. And he says, yeah, here's the reason, because your flesh is weak. But what would it look like if today you just said, you know what, I'm no longer going to live by the voice of my flesh, but I'm going to allow the voice of the Spirit to control my life and to trust him with that. It's in the garden that we see the, the, the paradox of the two different gardens, right? In the book of Genesis, there was a garden called the Garden of Eden, we see a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, and they fail the test in the garden. The flesh was weak. Jesus just said, if you can just stay away from this one tree, the moment this crafty serpent says, no, you, God didn't really say that. Twist it just a little bit. You can eat from this tree. The flesh gave in. They fell to sin. But what's so powerful here in this garden is we see a greater Adam we see a greater savior. We see one who didn't fail the test in the garden, but who squashed the head of Satan in this garden when he said, not my will, but your will be done. Max Lucado, famous author and writer, says that the Bible is the story of two gardens, Eden and Gethsemane. In the first, Adam took a fall. In the second, Jesus took a stand. Jesus sought God. In Eden, Adam hid from God. In Gethsemane, Jesus emerged from 
the tomb. In Eden, Satan led Adam to a tree that led to his death. From Gethsemane, Jesus went to a tree that led to our life. You see the paradox, the comparing and the contrast of the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. I praise God that we have a Savior who in this moment of distress did not just go ahead and hit the stop button, the give up button. I'm going to just go home button. But he said, I'm going to push through because he loves me and you. That it's in Gethsemane that we learn that though our flesh is weak, our God is still willing. And our God is still willing to step into your world and step into your life and save you change you, heal you, and call you, and deliver you, for his plan for you is good and great. Your flesh may be weak, that would be true, but oh, is our God willing. So I want to encourage you wherever you're at right now to go to him, to go to him, to make prayer prominent in your life. To say, God, what's your will? You know what the will of the Father is? That you would know his son. The will of the Father is that you would have a real, authentic relationship with Christ. The will of the Father is for you to believe in Jesus and to turn from your sin and to enjoy all that he has in store for you. The will of the Father is for you to have this real relationship with his son, Jesus. I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, not my will, but your will be done. God, I pray for everybody that's watching this right now. On this Sunday morning, would you save many? This day right here, would you draw people near? God, I pray you would save people that are far from you. And God, I pray that you would change people that are close to you. God, I pray that sinful people would become saints today. A saint, just somebody that has a relationship with Jesus. God, I pray for saved people to grow because of this message. God, as we get ready to prepare for Easter, may we know that the king is among us. And we have a king who passed the test in the garden. Thank you for being the king of our lives. If you've never made Jesus the king of your life, and you want to do that right now, and you've never received Jesus to be the Savior of your life, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. Just with all heads bowed and all eyes closed, invite him in. Just right now, say, Jesus, save me. Right now, Jesus, change me. Jesus, fill me with your Holy Spirit. I believe that you took on the cup of God's wrath for me. You died for me. Jesus, you died for me. This is amazing grace. Forgive me. I turn away from my sins and I turn to you, God, who can save. Give me a new start right now. Give me a fresh start right now. Thank you for loving me saving me. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.